All right, glad to be here with you guys this morning. We're going to continue our series in gospel conversations. Um, it's really just always an honor to have the opportunity to, to speak to you men and ladies and kids on a Sunday morning. It's, it's truly an honoring, humbling experience. The weeks leading up to these days, I, you know, it just consumes my thoughts, uh, obviously in preparation. But most importantly, you know, when you stand up here and you look at all of you sitting out there and you say, wow, what an amazing God we serve. Right, so thank you all for being here. It's a truly an honor. I'm excited once again to go through gospel conversations. And true to some of the other ones, the one we look at here, there's not a whole lot of conversation. It's mostly Jesus talking. Um, I've learned in my life that that's usually when I'm best, when mostly Jesus is talking and I'm listening. Um, so we're going to go through that. I've titled this message, Extravagant Worship is a Lifestyle. Extravagant Worship is a Lifestyle. So before we go into any further, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, God, to, God, to study your word, God, to allow it, Father, to change us from the inside out. God, I pray as we look at this area, God, of extravagant worship, and as we look at this picture in your gospel, Father, of the work that you did, and I pray, God, that it would penetrate our heart, and that it would bring us to a place of thinking differently, God, that it would challenge our thinking and God, that ultimately would bring glory to your name. And thank you for your word. And thank you God, for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so extravagant worship is a lifestyle. So I would leave you with this and ask you this question, and you don't have to answer. Um, you know, what is worship? Uh, you know, I think for many of us, you'd, you'd look at a couple of different things. You'd say what we did here this morning uh, during, during song would be worship, right? We call it, we call it, we do call it worship time. Um, so worship takes many different forms. Clearly, right now, this is a time of worship where we, where we study the Word of God. Um, and I want us to kind of look at that a little more deeply as we go through this. But that's going to be the picture, that worship is not going to be just a situational thing, but it's going to be a lifestyle that we do as believers. And we're going we're gonna to look at this conversation here that Jesus has with this lady. And I'm going to read the text here. It's going to be in John chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Let her alone, but you, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Right? It's a powerful, powerful picture. Many of you have read that story before. Um, we, we also see it in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14. We see a similar story. and There's a slight difference to the ending, and we'll talk about that a little later. But it's, it was a, it's a well-known part of the gospel for us, and there's some real powerful truths here. But I want, before we get into the heart of the message, I want us to kind of look at what's happening here in this story. Uh, the first thing we see there, of course, it's leading, uh, it's leading up to what? Jesus' death, right? We're getting close to Passover, so we're getting to the end here. Um, he's over, in, he's in Bethany, 
which is outside of Jerusalem. And he's kind of held up there, right? And at this point, he, we begin to know that he's kind of, kind of laying a little low. They're, they're after him, trying to arrest him and, and, and bring him in for his, his trial. So he's here, and previously, he's obviously, Lazarus was what? He was resurrected from the dead. So he's, he's here at their house, and it says there in the text, so they gave a dinner for him. And we know that that means that they were, it was a, a bit of a celebration of thanks for, for Lazarus' life. He was dead, and now he's alive. So he's there. So they, they had this opportunity of just blessing Jesus and thanking him for it. They're there reclined at the table. But Mary does something very powerful here. It says there that she anoints him with pure nard. It says a pound. Now, a pound is not what we know as a pound is 16 ounces. Just to be clear, it's actually, it's actually closer to 12 ounces uh, for what that's worth, but in the way the language breaks up. But the idea is it's a, it's a large amount of ointment. Um, think, about a, think about a Coke can, right? 12-ounce Coke can. This bottle here is 16 ounces. So something similar in size of this, of this nard, this ointment that she's pouring on him. Nard for, in that time, also known as spike nard. Any uh, essential oil people in the house? Anybody ever heard of spike nard? Right? You, you can get it on Amazon, I found. So you get a good deal on it. You got some on Amazon, yeah. But you can buy that today for that quantity, and it's actually so, as much as five or six hundred dollars for this amount, right? Which is really actually not that expensive when you consider what she actually did here. So we see that she takes this and she and she pours it on Jesus. It's a it was an oil. It was um, for aromatherapy. It has a calming effect. That was the idea behind it. But it was of great great value. It came it came from India. We extracted out of a a plant there. And what, why it was so costly was when you consider transportation um, in those days was quite different than we have today. So to get this stuff from there and get it here was very, was very timely. So this, this was extreme, extreme value. We saw Judas said later, what? It was worth 300 denarii, which would have been a year's worth of salary. Now, for us, I don't know, you know, to find out, I just kind of looked at a baseline. But if you think you just make minimum wage for a year here, that's somewhere in the range of, you know, $15,000. Um, and that would have been the equivalent of what this lady had, a year's worth of wages. And when you consider that, I think we need to understand how, how big of a deal that is um, and what that would have meant to have something that was worth a year's worth of wages and to dump it out, right? Think about it in your day-to-day. Think about just your perfume you have. How many of you here would just take the perfume you have? My wife says she has one that's called Coco Mademoiselle, right? Did I say that right, ladies? So would you take that and would you just pour it out on someone, right? Probably, probably not, right? And, that was, and that's really cheap in, conspar- in comparison. But the picture is what she did was extravagant. This was a big deal in what she did. But then she doesn't stop there, right? So she takes that alabaster flask, she pours it on him, it's running down his head, his body, down his feet. Then she does something that's even more profound. She lets down her hair. She lets down her hair, and, and in that day... That was a really, really big deal. A woman didn't just have her hair down like, like we're familiar with here. It was, a, it was a sign of honor and respect. But she, she, she releases that, and I'm guessing maybe she has it like in a bun or something, right? Maybe a messy bun. Um, I'm, I'm learning some of this terminology. So she lets down this, this bun, and then she does something even more than that. Then she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair. I mean, she has not stopped with just the extravagance of what, but her actions continue and continue. Because think about what we know about feet in that day, in that time. 
I mean, just think about your feet now, right? They didn't have the shoes we have, and they surely didn't have the roads that we have, and they didn't have the emissions regulations that we have, right? So feet were just nasty. Um, and it was, it was, it was a uh, task that was relegated to servants in that day to, to wash the feet. But here she is, a year's worth of salary. She lets down her, who she is as a woman with her hair, and then she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. So be, just continue to think about that on how extravagant this act of worship was. But then we see, we see Judas come into the picture. Um, and he doesn't have the same outlook that Mary does, right? He, he asks the question, why was this ointment not sold for the poor? How many of you know that his motives were not pure? Right? Judas was responsible for the, for the money. He was the, you know, that's definitely providential, right? I mean, who puts that guy in charge of the, uh, of the money? But clearly the reason is that he would take that stuff in and he was just skimming off the top, right? I mean, it was, so he had no pure motive in that. His idea was as if that was at his access, he would be able to use it for selfish, for selfish gain. But now we get to this part here where we see the, the conversation begin to lay out. And I want to read this part of the text. And again, and Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you will not always have me. Pretty profound, right? So first of all, Judas is, I mean, Jesus is telling Judas, hey, dude, back off, right? Leave her alone. That's, that, that's, the, that's the language he uses, leave her alone. What she's doing is a good thing. And what he's saying, is, aside from telling Judas to back off, what he's telling Mary, he says, Mary, never lose the awe and the wonder and the amazement that you have for me and the way in which you've just shown it through this extravagant worship of me, through this ointment and through washing my feet. Don't forget it. You back off, you don't stop. You continue. You keep pushing forward in that. He foreshadows to his burial. She does. You know, and the question is, is you know, did she really know all of the exact details of that? Probably not. But remember we saw a chapter earlier, Caiaphas said the same thing. I mean, he, said it was, he said that one man should die for all the people. So Throughout the text, we're seeing the foreshadowing continuing through, through Christ and through the death, burial, and the resurrection. But it, is he saying that we shouldn't worry about the poor? Right? Clearly, not, that's, clearly that's not what is going on. I mean, clearly we do that, but what we, what we know is that the emphasis of Jesus is central. That's where he's, he's bringing them back to. This is right worship. Whenever you have me above all other things, given that the poor is good, but... I am the most important. I am the biggest deal. I am the thing that you need to continue. So we see Mary extravagantly worshiping Jesus here. You know, I think it's really hard for us even, it's hard for me to really actually put that in context of what that would look like for us today. Um, because it's just, we just struggle with that. And we're mostly because we're selfish. Um, but when you consider what happened there, it is a powerful, powerful story. And it's going to kind of set the stage for us as we move through this. And I want, to ask, I want to ask us a couple of questions here. First one being, what is extravagant, right? So our title is Extravagant Worship is a Lifestyle. Well, let's just look at it, basic, first of all, just in definition. It's an adverb that we're going to use it here today, um, but it's exceeding the limits of reason or necessity. Now, that's our perspective, right? That it's exceeding the limits of reason or necessity. It's lacking in moderation, balance, or restraint and extremely or excessively elaborate. So this idea of extravagant is, is, is out the box. It's a big deal. It's a big part of it. But we've got that connected to worship. 
What is worship? Worship, too, in us setting for us is, uh, is the verb, it's the action, to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. I didn't add that word extravagant in there. That's part of the definition. So extravagant worship. It, worship in and of itself lends itself to being extravagant. But we want to we go in deep with that and say that it's extravagant worship is our lifestyle. What we've seen as extravagant as a man, I believe, is probably what Jesus would consider his standard. Right? That definition said it's un- unreasonable and above and limits. That's the way we see it. But what Jesus did for us on that cross um, is extravagant. And that's, and that's who he is. That's not what he did. That's who Christ is. And the same thing is going to play out for us as, in our lives as worshipers as we dig into this a little further. So why did Mary do what she did? Uh, do you think she was going to get something out of it? Do you think there was any selfish gain to that? Um, was it for a show? Did she want to just show off the amount of uh, pure nard that she had? Probably not, right? It was because Jesus was her Savior. And she saw the resurrecting power. She's going to see it in his life, but she saw it in Lazarus' life. She knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is her Savior. And when you know that Jesus is your Savior, these are the kind of things you do. Because it's undeniable what's happened in your life and the impact that Christ has had. So it's going to take us here to our first point this morning, that extravagant worship is the right response to lavishing grace. Extravagant worship is the right response to lavishing grace. I want, to, I want us to start here in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8, and it reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's a powerful word that's used there in verse 8. Lavished. He lavished it upon us. To lavish is to superabound in quality and or quantity. Right? What Jesus did for us on the cross was a lavishing outpouring of who he was for us. It was a, above and beyond. It was super amounts of it that was taking place. When you think about lavishing, and this is clearly a, a very cheap example considering Christ, but my wife reminded me of a time when I was a really good husband. And gave me permission to share. You did. Um, so most, most recently, you know, many, as many of you know, my wife does a, uh, an annual shopping trip with my mom and um, my sister and my sister-in-law. And they have a great time. I love the stories when they get back. But that's not what we're preaching about. Um, but while she was gone, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, my dad, we was, so the rule always was when mom left, you, um, you didn't do any cleaning until she said she was coming home, right? And that's when you really got started on the cleaning. Um, and I still hold true to that today. It works well, right? We manage the trash. We do things like spray Lysol on the, on the floor in the hall and slide down the hall. Um, like a slip and slide inside, right? But this trip was, was a little different. I was just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say that the Lord gave me this. And um, he just kind of gave me an extra fervor for wanting to do some things while she was gone. So I started off by, uh, I kind of had to trick it to happen because I knew, but I found a way to get her extra money into her, uh, into her shopping, shopping spree. Now, it was supposed to last the whole trip, but my sister 
is not very good at keeping secrets. Um, but my wife had no problem taking the extra money once, uh, once she knew. So I was able to do that. And then I said, you know what? She's been wanting some shelves in our, in our closet because um, I had been fussing about a omwa that was in my way. And she said, well, it can get out of your way if you look for some way to replace it. So I built some shelves. And uh, so I did that. And I, was, I was on a mission. And I said, you know what? She's been wanting to swing by the, by the pond. And, you know, when you're looking for cypress swings, you can't find them. But when you don't need one, every overpass, every corner in town has got one for sale. I had to, I had to do all some. I was going around. I got with uh, one of my old neighbors and got her on Facebook for me. And she's trying to track them down. And I, I got one, though. I got the last one. Got it brought, it, brought it back home, got it all set up. And I said, man, our, our patio is just so disorganized. Mostly because, mostly from me, right? It wasn't, it wasn't anything. So I got all of that cleaned up. I cleaned up the yard and I was feeling pretty good about myself. Um, and, I, and I did. She, she, when she got home, it was, she felt as though I had lavished my love upon her with all of that. And I got to let that build up again for a few more, uh, a few more years. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. Dr. Bud, that's not true. That's not good marriage advice, right? We lavish on our wives uh, as often as we can because of the importance of the relationship, because of how much we love them. And that's an earthly version of it, right? And it's a picture of who Christ is, but most of we consider what Christ did for us. Consider what he did for us and how he lavished his love upon us. So the picture is there that our worship of extravagance is only in response to what he lavished on us in his love, right? We are impacted by this lavishing grace and we must respond appropriately. Mary's response was correct response to Jesus, right? Is it, do we ever truly equal what Christ did for us? Of course not. But I, see, I think we see a picture there in the story with Mary of, of best possible of meeting what Christ did in her, in and of her own ability. And the same thing holds true for us. So here's the question, what limits us, what limits us from responding extravagantly in worship? How do we get to a place where extravagant worship is a lifestyle for us? What holds us back there? And it brought me to John 4, we actually, this was one of our previous gospel conversations, the woman there at the well, and I want to read a couple of verses here, starting in verse 20. It says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, remember Jesus is talking with this lady, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth in spirit, and in truth. So Jesus is correcting for this lady what true worship is, right? She mentions, you know, the mountain and, and this place and going to Jerusalem. So he's correcting her mindset there on what, what is actual true worship. And that true worship, there's a time coming when it's going to be in spirit and in truth. And of course, he's, he's the object of that worship. So he's, he's, he's shifting her thinking. And I think it needs to shift our thinking as well for us when we, when we start looking at this idea of spirit and truth. Because remember, we're looking at what is stopping us from having a lifestyle of extravagant worship. Um, 
this lady, that was all she knew, right? This picture of where they were and how they did, that was, that was what she knew. But there were some preconceptions that she had. And, of course, Jesus is correct in that. And I want us to look at that. I want us to look for ourselves because I believe the main reason why we struggle with having a lifestyle of extravagant worship as believers is because we have some wrong beliefs of what worship is. We have some wrong beliefs of what worship is, either something we've been shown, something that we've learned over time. But I do believe it's what hinders us from having a lifestyle of one of extravagant worship. We're going to go through a couple of them here. One, we've minimized it to a form and a function. We believe worship to be a certain something, a certain thing. It's only done here. We, we pigeonhole and we stick, it, we stick it in its own little spot. And the only time that we do worship is when we do this, right? And that can be different things for, for many of you here today. Um, but the picture is, is that the reason why it's not our lifestyle is because we've set it over here into a spot. And we engage it when we need it, and we pull out of it, we have our experience, and we come back and we come forth. Well, that's not a lifestyle when something's just sitting over in one spot. We've just minimized its importance in general. Um, we just go about our lives, we do the things that we do, um, and the idea of worship is um, really not even, not even on our radar. We don't even think about it. It's, uh, it's just it's something maybe other people do, uh, but it's, a, it's of minimal importance. Uh, one, we have a bad attitude about a particular form and a particular function. So not only have you put it in a little spot, when you go and visit it over there, there's things you don't like about it, right? There's just certain elements that you don't, that don't agree with you, and you're not comfortable with it. So therefore, when you go there, in the situation that you go there, then you, don't do, then you still don't do anything. Right, so it, we see that picture of it. We've made it about us and our feelings. We've turned worship into this thing that we need to get something out of it. Um, that the only way in which the Lord has worked in that moment is that we got goosebumps. Right? Or we feel excited about something. Well, worship's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our Savior. Right? That's, what, that's what it's about. And we have an expectation that others lead us to worship. Who leads you to worship? Your Savior leads you to worship, right? There's nobody in this building here that leads you to worship. Now, we may encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we may speak to the importance of it and the value of it, but worship is a matter of your heart. Worship is a thing that you do in an extravagant form because of what Christ has lavished in your life. It's not somebody else's responsibility to do that. Our worship is a lifestyle because of what Christ did for us. It's not as much as what we do, but as who we are. Worship is who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. There's a response. There's an impact that takes place. And I'm going to actually, i got a pretty neat illustration here for you. If you notice, we've got a pillar and a basketball. Pastor Freddie, got a basketball. Have you ever seen one of these? So what I, want, what I want us to look at this idea of extravagant worship and then our response um, to the lavishing grace in our lives. So for the sake of this illustration, this basketball would represent what Christ has done in your life. Right? This, is, this is his grace. This is his mercy. This is the salvation that happens. Well, there's another thing that we know about basketballs and about hard surfaces. We know about Murphy's 
uh, Newton's, not Murphy's, Murphy's Law is the other one, Newton's Law, third law of motion, about what? What's the third law of motion? Right, an equal and opposite reaction takes place, right? So I know here if I take this basketball and I bounce it on the ground, it comes right back, right? There's a couple of forces that we know that act upon this. Uh, one, that this floor is, uh, has some absorbency in it. We know gravity is affecting it. But we know that when this ball hits this surface, there's this, the same reaction takes place. So when, so when Christ came into your life and he, and he hits your life with his full impact, What's the response for us? That that full impact goes back out, right? We send it back to them. But here's the problem, right? Walking along, everything's going fine. But some of those bad ideas and some of those bad doctrines get in the way. And watch what happens. What happens? And pick it back up. What happens? I don't like the way that sounded. I don't like the way that looked. Um, I don't like what that person told me. But what's happened? We're ineffective. We're ineffective. Why? Because what Christ meant to be a powerful impact of something that he would send into your life that you would send back in the opposite direction falls flat. Falls flat. But when we have right doctrine and we have real understanding of what Christ did, it's back up. It's right back up. And we'll get to this a little bit later, and this will become a chess pass. To other believers in our lives, right? Worship goes to Christ first, and because of our worship going back to Christ, then those that are around us are impacted. So don't be this believer where it just falls flat. Question your doctrine. Question what's going on in your life. Question how you view worship and how it's impacting not only those around you, but most importantly, your Savior who lavishly laid something upon you. So how do we worship? The scripture told us there. It was two words, in spirit and in truth, right? Let's look at that a little bit. So spirit, when we look at, we look at what the text is telling us there, um, is, it's not an external conformity in our lives. It's an it's a inward change of our heart when it says we worship in spirit. When we worship in spirit, and we worship in truth, in addition to that, and the truth is the word of God. And that Jesus is the Christ, the incarnation of God, the Savior of all the world. That's the truth that we anchor off of. And the Spirit is that which is in us. It's, it's an attitude, it's a change of our heart. So I would challenge you with this, that worship is not anything that we necessarily do, but it's the way in which, it's the way in which we live our lives in every area. Right? When you leave here this afternoon and you're driving home, you have the ability to be in a state of worship as you drive your vehicle, as you get to your house, as you go to the restaurant. No matter what you do, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is not worship who we are? Is that not the very essence of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Because no matter what, you're worshiping something, right? There's no, like, in-between area. If you're not worshiping Christ with your life, then you're worshiping something else. No matter what, it's an either or, it's, or an or. It's not anything that's in between. So we worship in spirit and truth. And truth always comes by the word of God. That is what we anchor off of. That is what we use. I saw a quote here by a gentleman by the name of Michael Hoodman. I thought it said it very well. Spirit without truth leads to a shallow, overly emotional experience that could be compared to a high. As soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, so does the worship. 
Truth without spirit can result in a dry, passionless encounter that can easily lead to a form of joyous legalism. Right? Spirit and truth. We walk in both of those. Spirit and we walk in truth. So now that we see this extravagant worship as a response to the lavishing love of Christ, it brings us to our next point here. And that being that right worship comes from sacrifice. Right worship comes from sacrifice. And I want to bring us to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right worship comes from sacrifice. I want to look at two things there. He mentions the first one is bodies. He mentions bodies, right? To present your body as a living sacrifice. Here's the thing. Presenting your bodies is not just a, a portion of it. It's just not a, a certain thing that you do. When you present your body, you are presenting everything about your physical body. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your will. Everything is there. It's not just I did something in sacrifice. I am something in sacrifice. Right? There's a difference there. It's a totality. It's not mutually exclusive in our lives. We take the whole thing and we put it out there. So we take our whole body, but it says to do it in a certain way. First of all, it's living, right? We know it's a living sacrifice. Here we are today. It's holy and it's acceptable. So what is holy? It's pure and it's blameless. Acceptable, what's acceptable is when the sacrifice is complete, not when it's a partial sacrifice. An acceptable sacrifice is a complete sacrifice, right? We see all throughout the Old Testament when someone gave a partial sacrifice, what happened? A lot of them died, right? But we know for us and today that if we want to be completely and totally, it's everything about us. You know, living sacrifices kind of have a tendency to crawl off the altar, right? You know, in the Old Testament, they, were, they took them out. They were done. They weren't going anywhere So you did something with them. But living sacrifice, on the hand, they're always on the move, right? So there's, a, there's an element of us needing to stay there despite, despite what it means to be a sacrifice. I was thinking about when you ball crawfish. You dump all of them in the basket. You rinse them off, and you set them off to the side while you get your water going. And how many of you, when you come back, they are not all still in there, right? They are all around the yard. You're having to chase them down, and you got your kids going to get them for you. And clearly, some of them get away. You know, they're about to be sacrificed in a different kind of way. But they're on the move. And the same thing holds true for us. We, we don't like being in that basket. We, don't, we, we know that the burner's roaring and that we're about, to have to, we're about to have to settle in in there. And it's not easy because it wouldn't be sacrifice if it was, if it was easy. Right? Sacrifice is not easy. But in, in sacrifice will come true worship. It's the right way in which we are able to respond. When we present our bodies in this, form, in this way, it says to present our bodies, we are in fact worshiping our Lord and our Savior. When we give it all to Him, Everything goes to him. And we're able to do this, why? Because we have superpowers and great strengths? No, it's because of who we are in Christ. Look what it says here in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer 
spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, and look what it says here, through Jesus Christ. What we have to offer and what we do as believers is, is, is holy and it's blameless because of Jesus Christ. Because whenever, whenever God looks at the sacrifice of us, he sees Jesus, right? That's what, that is the lens by which we are seen. That's why we are righteous before him, because of the sacrifice that the Lord did on the cross for us. So you say, what are, what are some spiritual sacrifices? I've got a couple here, and this is not an inclusive list. But one, our bodies and just the physical acts that we do with it. Right? There's many different things that we, we do in our physical body to bring sacrifice, to bring an act of worship to Jesus. Praising God through song, through dance, through the studying of God's word. Those are all ways in which we worship our risen Savior. Right? I mean, we commonly gather here and do worship in music, right? And worship in music is, is amazing. It's a good thing. But if it's the only time in your life that you worship, you've missed it. You've missed it. And if you don't even show up for that one time, you've surely missed it. Right? The one opportunity that you maybe had, two, you missed altogether. But if we sit here and say that that's the only way when worship, remember that goes back to that bad belief. We've got it over here. We engage it when we need it. But I'll tell you, like many things we do in church here, on a Sunday morning, do you do everything here in the time that you're here that's representative as a believer in Jesus Christ? Clearly, no. There's not enough time. But it's a, but it's a, it's a modeling of what is important to us as believers, that worship is important, that studying the Word of God is important, that fellowship is important, so that when you leave here, all of those things just become multiplied. You do them in more ways and more opportunities and more people. Doing good works. Good works don't save us, but they are a picture of the work that Christ has done. There are spiritual sacrifices. In those works, we share ourselves with others, right? How many of you have done things here that you really didn't want to do for your brother and sister in Christ, right? Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. And you don't need to tell them that either, for the record. You just need to smile, right? A living sacrifice. Smile. We're trying to get out the basket. Discipleship, right? Every time we engage in discipleship, it could be in a very intentional way we do for D groups. It could be on a Sunday morning. It could be when you meet with your life groups. It could be with your family. And when we, when we engage in discipleship, it is an act of worship to our Savior. When we lead people to Christ, when we get excited about evangelism, right? When we, when we go out into our workplace and we, and we tell of all the goodness of Christ and what you've done in our life, it's our spiritual sacrifice. Because how many of you know that's not always the easiest thing, right? It's not always the easiest thing to do. But it's important. It's our spiritual sacrifices. Just like we did this morning in the giving of our finances. That's a big sacrifice that we would give in our finances, Right? That's probably for all of us the one that's the hardest to deal with. You're only a giver in your finances because of the work that Christ has done in your life. Right? Other than that, you're the 20 in the plate guy. Right? That's what I heard growing up. Just throw a 20 in the plate. We don't give for, for quantity. We give because of what has been lavished in our lives through Christ Jesus. It's a response. Consider this lady when Mary does. She gives a year's worth to Jesus because of what Christ has done in her life. 
Our finances say lots of things about us. I want mine to always say that I'm a child of God. And in prayer, right? Our spiritual sacrifices come in prayer. You know, once again, an intentional way we do that here is we meet the first Sunday, which happens to be tonight here at church for an hour, and we pray as followers in Christ. And I would encourage you to come. It's a, it's a sweet time of corporately gathering with one another and praying. But is it the only time we pray? Of course not, right? Prayer is an act of worship that happens at all times. It's something that we're always doing. It's something that we're always engaged in. Why? Once again, remember, are those, are those spiritual sacrifices acceptable? Because of who we are in Christ. Through Christ Jesus, those things are acceptable. Our view of sacrifice is relative to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I believe that to be true. That when, with the way in which we see sacrifice, the way in which we sacrifice active worship, lends itself to our belief in who Jesus Christ is. And to the level by which we believe he has changed our hearts, and our lives. Takes us to our third point here, that pure worship advances the gospel to those around us. Pure worship advances the gospel to those around us. I want to take us back to this story with Mary, and I want to look at the end of Matthew, when, it, when you see the account there in verse 13, and Jesus, um, excuse me, and he says there, truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Right? How powerful is that? That her act of worship was going to impact others for all of eternity. Because what Jesus did for her didn't fall flat. She responded back in a very extravagant way. She was a true reflection of the work that Christ did. Her heart's and her eyes were fixed on Jesus Christ. The gospel creates right worship in our lives. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is a very act of worship that's taking place. And when we see what Christ has done, we, we see that that is how we are to respond as well. So let's think about this. How is, the worship, how is worship in our lives a way by which the gospel is advanced? Well, first of all, for the believer, for brothers and sisters in Christ, as we gather here this morning, right? We gather in different capacities. We do different things. I was thinking about it this week. Our life group met, and we're going through this series of Kingdom Disciples with Tony Evans, and he shared a story this particular week. For those of you who have gotten to this point, I've already passed it. And he asked the question, he said, what fruit in your life is being consumed by other people around you? Is the fruit in your life able to be consumed by others around you? And that's speaking in this process of, he was talking about discipleship. You know, someone walk up to your life and they pluck that piece of fruit off of you and be better for it when they're done. When they see that act of worship in your life, does it point, by them seeing that in you, it points them back to Christ. In that way, the gospels move, the gospels advanced. I noticed something this time reading that, which I've not noticed before in the Great Commission, because we tend to always go to the point where he gives us the imperatives. But in 28.17, in the first part, as Jesus is walking up to his disciples, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him. What's interesting is, out of that worship came the Great Commission. 
It came the picture for us to go, therefore, to, to be intentional in the lives of the believers around us, to evangelize and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Worship promotes a heart and a desire, not only for discipleship, but for evangelism. Because of what we have, we want to give to others. I was reminded of the story in this next part of Paul and Silas being in prison. Because the other way that worship in your life advances the gospel is to the non-believer. It's to the people at your workplace that don't know Jesus Christ. But they're watching your life. And they know what you're worshiping. You might be in denial about you worshiping, but they know what you're worshiping. And I can assure you, if you're worshiping Jesus Christ in every area of your life, they know it. And some of you have had them ask questions. And some of them have come to you and said, why did you do that? Why did you give this? Why did you go there? And you once again get a a deeper opportunity to share the gospel with them. But think about that story in Acts with Paul and Silas. They'd just been thrown into the inner parts of the prison. They'd been locked into the stocks. I want to catch the story right there. I want us to look at this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, mind you, beaten, locked, and stocked. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He threw his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, look at this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So out of their worship, prayer, And out of song, the gospel was advanced. It's not by chance that that jailer just asked the question, what must I do to be saved? It was clear representation that what they had was saving power and saving grace and that they needed it. It's just a powerful story that in their worst condition, in being complete sacrifice, their act of worship once again advanced the purity of the gospel in the lives of those believers. Pure worship advances the gospel around us. Unpure worship is sniffed out because it's not worship at all. But pure worship is one by which lives are changed because when that basketball came into your life, it went right back. And because of that, that ball went out to someone else and to someone else and to someone else. But the gospel was on its way to somebody else when it impacted your life. And that'll be true for until the time that Christ comes back. You know, I was preparing for this message. I got to thinking about the story of Matt Redman, the song A Heart of Worship. And you remember that? Back from the 19, 1990s. And it's a powerful story because he, he attended a church in, in England at the time. He was obviously played music there. Great singer, songwriter, right? Many of you heard other songs from him. And maybe you know this story, but I want to share it with you because I think it's powerful. They were at a time in their church when their pastor, his name was Mike Pilavachi. And he asked a question. He says, when you come through the doors on Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? 
So he was painting, laying this picture out for his congregation, and clearly that was in the, in the picture of just a Sunday. But when you look at, I, read, I watched one of the other interviews, and one of his concerns was is that his church had lost an understanding in what it meant to be true worshipers of God. And in his setting, what he knew had happened is, is they had fully relied on, on the music and the experience. So he did a really, really profound thing to show what it meant to be a true worshiper. He got rid of all of the worship team, got rid of all of the sound system. And the next week that they gathered, they just sang corporately. Now don't worry, we're not doing that here. But the picture is profound. That pastor saw that what had happened is that they had, they had taken worship and pigeonholed it. They had put it into a certain form and a certain function, and because of it, they were not true worshipers. Because true worshipers are what of in spirit and in truth. But I will tell you that worshiping through song and through praise is so good. It is a good thing that we do. But I'm going to tell you, if that is the only way in which you think you worship, you've missed it, church. You have missed it. When you enter into a time of praise and singing, what it should be is just an excitement and a fervor for a life that you already live. That because of it, you're not there just for an emotional feeling, for a goosebump or any of those things, but you're there because you want to show the believers around you that the pure worship in your heart has changed your life. And in that, brothers and sisters grow closer and closer together in Christ and in unity. I want to share the share some of these words of the song with you before because I, I want us to, I do want us to sing it this morning. But listen to the words as we're going through this. When the music fades and all is stripped away. And this was, and this was the song that Matt wrote in his bedroom after this time. He had no intentions of it actually being a song. He was, the Lord was just sharing things on his heart. So this is after that first service when all of the instruments and all of the music had gone away. And he says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, And I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I will bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to a heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. So if you would, I'd like you to stand with me this morning, and we're going to sing this song. And I want you to consider the words, and I want you to think about it. And let let those words meditate on you that it's not about us. It's about Christ Jesus. When the music fades And all is stripped away And I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required 
You look much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus Sing King of Endless Word King of Endless Word No one could express how much you deserve Though I'm weak and poor I'll bring I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required Oh, you search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Oh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. When it's all about you, oh, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. I'll bring, I'll bring you more than a song. For song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. Let's sing it together. I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the thing I've made it when it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus, I'm coming back to sing hard.
it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. All about you. Oh, it's all about, it's all about, oh, it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Yes, Father, it is all about you, God. Yes, give him praise. It is all about you, Father. God, forgive us, God, for being a church if we've ever missed it. God, forgive us, God, for putting it into a certain place and Make it in a certain form and a certain function. God, I pray, God, that this church, that your church, Living Word Church, God, would be a church that extravagantly worships. God, that our worship, Father, would be our lifestyle. And God, that the purity of our worship, God, would touch the hearts and lives of everyone around us. God, you are worthy of all praise. God, our total body, Father, we sacrifice to you. Our thoughts and our minds in all that we do. God, give us strength each day, Father, to stay in that place of sacrifice. God, to not crawl off of that altar to a place of where it's easy and simple. God, to a place that, that we would be in total sacrifice. God, not to be say that we did something impressive or we've done something great because we can say that what you've done in our lives, that you are worthy to be praised. And God, that your name would be named above all other names. God, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And you are dismissed.